This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Peter Yearsley. The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or The Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life. Sixth London Edition by Charles Darwin. Chapter number fourteen. Section one. Mutual affinities of organic beings. Morphology, embryology, rudimentary organs. Contents of this chapter include classification, groups subordinate to groups, natural system, rules and difficulties in classification, explained on the theory of descent with modification, classification of varieties, descent always used in classification, analogical or adaptive characters, affinities, general, complex, and radiating, extinction separates and defines groups, morphology between members of the same class, between parts of the same individual, embryology, laws of, explained by variations not supervening at an early age, and being inherited at a corresponding age. Rudimentary organs, their origin explained. Summary Classification From the most remote period in the history of the world, organic beings have been found to resemble each other in descending degrees, so that they can be classed in groups under groups. This classification is not arbitrary, like the grouping of the stars in constellations. The existence of groups would have been of simple significance, if one group had been exclusively fitted to inhabit the land, and another the water, one to feed on flesh, another on vegetable matter, and so on. But the case is widely different, for it is notorious how commonly members of even the same subgroup have different habits. In the second and fourth chapters, on variation and on natural selection, I have attempted to show that within each country it is the widely ranging, the much diffused and common, that is the dominant species, belonging to the larger genera in each class, which vary most. The varieties, or incipient species, thus produced, ultimately become converted into new and distinct species, and these, on the principle of inheritance, tend to produce other new and dominant species. Consequently, the groups which are now large, and which generally include many dominant species, tend to go on increasing in size. I further attempted to show that from the varying descendants of each species trying to occupy as many and as different places as possible in the economy of nature, they constantly tend to diverge in character. This latter conclusion is supported by observing the great diversity of forms which in any small area come into the closest competition, and by certain facts in naturalization. I attempted also to show that there is a steady tendency in the forms which are increasing in number and diverging in character to supplant and exterminate the preceding less divergent and less improved forms. I request the reader to turn to the diagram illustrating the action, as formerly explained, 
of these several principles, and he will see that the inevitable result is that the modified descendants proceeding from one progenitor become broken up into groups subordinate to groups. In the diagram, each letter on the uppermost line may represent a genus including several species, and the whole of the genera along this upper line form together one class, for all are descended from one ancient parent, and consequently have inherited something in common. But the three genera on the left hand have, on this same principle, much in common, and form a subfamily distinct from that containing the next two genera on the right hand, which diverged from a common parent at the fifth stage of descent. These five genera have also much in common, though less than when grouped in subfamilies, and they form a family distinct from that containing the three genera still further to the right hand, which diverged at an earlier period. And all these genera, descended from A, form an order distinct from the genera descended from I, so that we here have many species descended from a single progenitor grouped into genera, and the genera into subfamilies, families, and orders, all under one great class. The grand fact of the natural subordination of organic beings in groups under groups, which, from its familiarity, does not always sufficiently strike us, is, in my judgment, thus explained. No doubt organic beings, like all other objects, can be classed in many ways, either artificially by single characters, or more naturally by a number of characters. We know, for instance, that minerals and the elemental substances can thus be arranged. In this case there is, of course, no relation to genealogical succession, and no cause can at present be assigned for their falling into groups. But with organic beings the case is different, and the view above given accords with their natural arrangement in group under group, and no other explanation has ever been attempted. Naturalists, as we have seen, try to arrange the species, genera, and families in each class on what is called the natural system. But what is meant by this system? Some authors look at it merely as a scheme for arranging together those living objects which are most alike, and for separating those which are most unlike, or as an artificial method of enunciating, as briefly as possible, general propositions. That is, by one sentence, to give the characters common, for instance, to all mammals, by another, those common to all carnivora, by another, those common to the dog genus, and then, by adding a single sentence, a full description is given of each kind of dog. The ingenuity and utility of this system are indisputable, but many naturalists think that something more is meant by the natural system. They believe that it reveals the plan of the Creator, but unless it be specified whether order in time or space, or both, or what else is meant by the plan of the Creator, it seems to me that nothing is thus added to our knowledge. Expressions such as that famous one by Linnaeus, which we often meet with in a more or less concealed form, namely, that the characters do not make the genus, but that the genus gives the characters, 
seem to imply that some deeper bond is included in our classifications than mere resemblance. I believe that this is the case, and that community of descent, the one known cause of close similarity in organic beings, is the bond which, though observed by various degrees of modification, is partly revealed to us by our classifications. Let us now consider the rules followed in classification, and the difficulties which are encountered on the view that classification either gives some unknown plan of creation, or is simply a scheme for enunciating general propositions and of placing together the forms most like each other. It might have been thought, and was in ancient times thought, that those parts of the structure which determined the habits of life, and the general place of each being in the economy of nature, would be of very high importance in classification. Nothing can be more false. No one regards the external similarity of a mouse to a shrew, of a dugong to a whale, of a whale to a fish, as of any importance. These resemblances, though so intimately connected with the whole life of the being, are ranked as merely adaptive or analogical characters, but to the consideration of these resemblances we shall recur. It may even be given as a general rule that the less any part of the organization is concerned with special habits, the more important it becomes for classification. As an instance, Owen, in speaking of the dugong, says, the generative organs, being those which are most remotely related to the habits and food of an animal, I have always regarded as affording very clear indications of its true affinities. We are least likely in the modifications of these organs to mistake a merely adaptive for an essential character. With plants, how remarkable it is that the organs of vegetation on which their nutrition and life depend are of little signification, whereas the organs of reproduction, with their product, the seed and the embryo, are of paramount importance. So again, informally discussing certain morphological characters which are not functionally important, we have seen that they are often of the highest service in classification. This depends on their constancy throughout many allied groups, and their constancy chiefly depends on any slight deviations not having been preserved and accumulated by natural selection, which acts only on serviceable characters. That the mere physiological importance of an organ does not determine its classificatory value is almost proved by the fact that in allied groups in which the same organ, as we have every reason to suppose, has nearly the same physiological value, its classificatory value is widely different. No naturalist can have worked at any group without being struck with this fact and it has been fully acknowledged in the writings of almost every author. It will suffice to quote the highest authority, Robert Brown, who, in speaking of certain organs in the Proteaceae, says their generic importance, like that of all their parts, not only in this, but as I apprehend in every natural family, is very unequal, and in some cases seems to be entirely lost. Again, in another work, he says, the genera of the Conoraceae differ in having one or more ovaria 
in the existence or absence of albumen in the imbricate or valvular estivation. Any one of these characters singly is frequently of more than generic importance, though here even, when taken altogether, they appear insufficient to separate nestis from canaras. To give an example among insects, in one great division of the hymenoptera, the antennae, as Westwood has remarked, are most constant in structure. In another division they differ much, and the differences are of quite subordinate value in classification. Yet no one will say that the antennae in these two divisions of the same order are of unequal physiological importance. Any number of instances could be given of the varying importance for classification of the same important organ within the same group of beings. Again, no one will say that rudimentary or atrophied organs are of high physiological or vital importance, yet undoubtedly organs in this condition are often of much value in classification. No one will dispute that the rudimentary teeth in the upper jaws of young ruminants and certain rudimentary bones of the leg are highly serviceable in exhibiting the close affinity between ruminants and pachyderms. Robert Brown has strongly insisted on the fact that the position of the rudimentary florets is of the highest importance in the classification of the grasses. Numerous instances could be given of characters derived from parts which must be considered of very trifling physiological importance, but which are universally admitted as highly serviceable in the definition of whole groups. For instance, whether or not there is an open passage from the nostrils to the mouth, the only character, according to Owen, which absolutely distinguishes fishes and reptiles, the inflection of the angle of the lower jaw in marsupials, the manner in which the wings of insects are folded, mere colour in certain algae, mere pubescence on parts of the flower in grasses, the nature of the dermal covering, as hair or feathers, in the vertebrata. If the ornithorhynchus had been covered with feathers instead of hair, this external and trifling character would have been considered by naturalists as an important aid in determining the degree of affinity of this strange creature to birds. The importance for classification of trifling characters mainly depends on their being correlated with many other characters of more or less importance. The value, indeed, of an aggregate of characters is very evident in natural history. Hence, as has often been remarked, a species may depart from its allies in several characters, both of high physiological importance and of almost universal prevalence, and yet leave us in no doubt where it should be ranked. Hence, also, it has been found that a classification founded on any single character, however important that may be, has always failed, for no part of the organization is invariably constant. The importance of an aggregate of characters, even when none are important, alone explains the aphorism enunciated by Linnaeus, namely, that the characters do not give the genus, but the genus gives the character, 
for this seems founded on the appreciation of many trifling points of resemblance, too slight to be defined. Certain plants belonging to the Malpighiaceae bear perfect and degraded flowers. In the latter, as A. de Jussieu has remarked, the greater number of the characters proper to the species, to the genus, to the family, to the class, disappear, and thus laugh at our classification. When Aspicarpa produced in France during several years only those degraded flowers, departing so wonderfully in a number of the most important points of structure from the proper type of the order, yet M. Richard sagaciously saw, as Jussieu observes, that this genus should still be retained among the Malpighiaceae. This case well illustrates the spirit of our classifications. Practically, when naturalists are at work, they do not trouble themselves about the physiological value of the characters which they use in defining a group, or in allocating any particular species. If they find a character nearly uniform, and common to a great number of forms and not common to others, they use it as one of high value. If common to some lesser number, they use it as of subordinate value. This principle has been broadly confessed by some naturalists to be the true one, and by none more clearly than by that excellent botanist Auguste Saint-Hilaire. If several trifling characters are always found in combination, though no apparent bond of connection can be discovered between them, a special value is set on them. As in most groups of animals, important organs, such as those for propelling the blood, or for aerating it, or those for propagating the race, are found nearly uniform. They are considered as highly serviceable in classification. But in some groups all these, the most important vital organs, are found to offer characters of quite subordinate value. Thus, as Fritz Müller has lately remarked, in the same group of crustaceans, Cypridina is furnished with a heart, while in two closely allied genera, namely Cypris and Cytherea, there is no such organ. One species of Cypridina has well-developed branchiae, while another species is destitute of them. We can see why characters derived from the embryo should be of equal importance with those derived from the adult, for a natural classification of course includes all ages, but it is by no means obvious on the ordinary view why the structure of the embryo should be more important for this purpose than that of the adult, which alone plays its full part in the economy of nature. Yet it has been strongly urged by those great naturalists Milne Edwards and Agassiz that embryological characters are the most important of all, and this doctrine has very generally been admitted as true. Nevertheless, their importance has sometimes been exaggerated owing to the adaptive characters of larvae not having been excluded. In order to show this, Fritz Muller arranged, by the aid of such characters alone, the great class of crustaceans, and the arrangement did not prove a natural one. But there can be no doubt that embryonic, excluding larval characters, are of the highest value for classification, not only with animals, but with plants. Thus the main divisions of flowering plants are founded on differences in the embryo. 
on the number and position of the cotyledons, and on the mode of development of the plumule and radical. We shall immediately see why these characters possess so high a value in classification, namely, from the natural system being genealogical in its arrangement. Our classifications are often plainly influenced by chains of affinities. Nothing can be easier than to define a number of characters common to all birds, but with crustaceans any such definition has hitherto been found impossible. There are crustaceans at the opposite ends of the series, which have hardly a character in common, yet the species at both ends, from being plainly allied to others, and these to others, and so onwards, can be recognized as unequivocally belonging to this and to no other class of the articulata. Geographical distribution has often been used, though perhaps not quite logically, in classification, more especially in very large groups of closely allied forms. Temink insists on the utility or even necessity of this practice in certain groups of birds, and it has been followed by several entomologists and botanists. Finally, with respect to the comparative value of the various groups of species, such as orders, suborders, families, subfamilies, and genera, they seem to be, at least at present, almost arbitrary. Several of the best botanists, such as Mr. Bentham and others, have strongly insisted on their arbitrary value. Instances could be given among plants and insects of a group first ranked by practised naturalists as only a genus, and then raised to the rank of a subfamily or family. And this has been done not because further research has detected important structural differences at first overlooked, but because numerous allied species with slightly different grades of difference have been subsequently discovered. All the foregoing rules and aids and difficulties in classification may be explained, if I do not greatly deceive myself, on the view that the natural system is founded on descent with modification, that the characters which naturalists consider as showing true affinity between any two or more species are those which have been inherited from a common parent, all true classification being genealogical, that community of descent is the hidden bond which naturalists have been unconsciously seeking, and not some unknown plan of creation, or the enunciation of general propositions and the mere putting together and separating objects more or less alike. But I must explain my meaning more fully. I believe that the arrangement of the groups within each class, in due subordination and relation to each other, must be strictly genealogical in order to be natural but that the amount of difference in the several branches or groups, though allied in the same degree in blood to their common progenitor, may differ greatly, being due to the different degrees of modification which they have undergone. And this is expressed by the forms being ranked under different genera, families, sections, or orders. The reader will best understand what is meant if he will take the trouble to refer to the diagram in the fourth chapter. We will suppose the letters A to L 
to represent allied genera existing during the Silurian epoch, and descended from some still earlier form. In three of these genera, A, F, and I, a species has transmitted modified descendants to the present day, represented by the fifteen genera, A14 to Z14, on the uppermost horizontal line. Now all these modified descendants from a single species are related in blood or descent in the same degree. They may metaphorically be called cousins to the same millionth degree, yet they differ widely and in different degrees from each other. The forms descended from A, now broken up into two or three families, constitute a distinct order from those descended from I, also broken up into two families. Nor can the existing species descended from A be ranked in the same genus with the parent A, or those from I with parent I. But the existing genus F14 may be supposed to have been but slightly modified, and it will then rank with the parent genus F, just as some few still living organisms belong to Silurian genera, so that the comparative value of the difference between these organic beings, which are all related to each other in the same degree in blood, has come to be widely different. Nevertheless, their genealogical arrangement remains strictly true, not only at the present time, but at each successive period of descent. All the modified descendants from A will have inherited something in common from their common parent, as will all the descendants from I. So will it be with each subordinate branch of descendants at each successive stage. If, however, we suppose any descendant of A or of I to have become so much modified as to have lost all traces of its parentage, in this case its place in the natural system will be lost, as seems to have occurred with some few existing organisms. All the descendants of the genus F, along its whole line of descent, are supposed to have been but little modified, and they form a single genus. But this genus, though much isolated, will still occupy its proper intermediate position. The representation of the groups as here given in the diagram on a flat surface is much too simple. The branches ought to have diverged in all directions. If the names of the groups had been simply written down in a linear series, the representation would have been still less natural, and it is notoriously not possible to represent in a series on a flat surface the affinities which we discover in nature among the beings of the same group. Thus the natural system is genealogical in its arrangement, like a pedigree, but the amount of modification which the different groups have undergone has to be expressed by ranking them under different so-called genera, subfamilies, families, sections, orders, and classes. It may be worth while to illustrate this view of classification by taking the case of languages. If we possessed a perfect pedigree of mankind, a genealogical arrangement of the races of man would afford the best classification of the various languages now spoken throughout the world. And if all extinct languages and all intermediate and slowly changing dialects were to be included, such an arrangement would be the only possible one. 
yet it might be that some ancient languages had altered very little, and had given rise to few new languages, while others had altered much, owing to the spreading, isolation, and state of civilization of the several co-descended races, and had thus given rise to many new dialects and languages. The various degrees of difference between the languages of the same stock would have to be expressed by groups subordinate to groups, but the proper, or even the only possible, arrangement would still be genealogical, and this would be strictly natural, as it would connect together all the languages, extinct and recent, by the closest affinities, and would give the filiation and the origin of each tongue. In confirmation of this view, let us glance at the classification of varieties which are known or believed to be descended from a single species. These are grouped under the species, with the sub-varieties under the varieties, and in some cases, as with the domestic pigeon, with several other grades of difference. Nearly the same rules are followed as in classifying species. Authors have insisted on the necessity of arranging varieties on a natural instead of an artificial system. We are cautioned, for instance, not to class two varieties of the pineapple together merely because their fruit, though the most important part, happens to be nearly identical. No one puts the Swedish and common turnip together, though the esculent and thickened stems are so similar. Whatever part is found to be most constant is used in classing varieties. Thus the great agriculturist, Marshall, says the horns are very useful for this purpose with cattle, because they are less variable than the shape or colour of the body, etc., whereas with sheep the horns are much less serviceable, because less constant. In classing varieties, I apprehend that if we had a real pedigree, a genealogical classification would be universally preferred, and it has been attempted in some cases, for we might feel sure, whether there had been more or less modification, that the principle of inheritance would keep the forms together which were allied in the greatest number of points. In tumbler pigeons, though some of the sub-varieties differ in the important character of the length of the beak, yet all are kept together from having the common habit of tumbling, but the short-faced breed has nearly or quite lost this habit. Nevertheless, without any thought on the subject, these tumblers are kept in the same group, because allied in blood and alike in some other respects. With species in a state of nature, every naturalist has in fact brought descent into his classification, for he includes in his lowest grade, that of species, the two sexes, and how enormously these some differ in the most important characters is known to every naturalist. Scarcely a single fact can be predicated in common of the adult males and hermaphrodites, of certain cirripedes, and yet no one dreams of separating them. As soon as the three orchidean forms Monocanthus, Myanthus, and Catacetum, which had previously been ranked as three distinct genera, were known to be sometimes produced on the same plant, they were immediately considered as varieties, and now I have been able to show that they are the male, female, and hermaphrodite forms of the same species. The naturalist includes as one species the various larval stages of the same individual, 
however much they may differ from each other and from the adult, as well as the so-called alternate generations of Steenstrup, which can only in a technical sense be considered as the same individual. He includes monsters and varieties, not from their partial resemblance to the parent form, but because they are descended from it. As descent has universally been used in classing together the individuals of the same species, though the males and females and larvae are sometimes extremely different, and as it has been used in classing varieties which have undergone a certain and sometimes a considerable amount of modification, may not this same element of descent have been unconsciously used in grouping species under genera, and genera under higher groups, all under the so-called natural system? I believe it has been unconsciously used, and thus only can I understand the several rules and guides which have been followed by our best systematists. As we have no written pedigrees, we are forced to trace community of descent by resemblances of any kind. Therefore we choose those characters which are the least likely to have been modified in relation to the conditions of life to which each species has been recently exposed. Rudimentary structures, on this view, are as good as or even sometimes better than other parts of the organization. We care not how trifling a character may be, let it be the mere inflection of the angle of the jaw, the manner in which an insect's wing is folded, whether the skin be covered by hair or feathers. If it prevail throughout many and different species, especially those having very different habits of life, it assumes high value, for we can account for its presence in so many forms with such different habits only by inheritance from a common parent. We may err in this respect in regard to single points of structure, but when several characters, let them be ever so trifling, concur throughout a large group of beings having different habits, we may feel almost sure on the theory of descent, that these characters have been inherited from a common ancestor, and we know that such aggregated characters have especial value in classification. We can understand why a species or a group of species may depart from its allies in several of its most important characteristics and yet be safely classed with them. This may be safely done, and is often done, as long as a sufficient number of characters, let them be ever so unimportant, betrays the hidden bond of community of descent. Let two forms have not a single character in common, yet if these extreme forms are connected together by a chain of intermediate groups, we may at once infer their community of descent, and we put them all into the same class. As we find organs of high physiological importance, those which serve to preserve life under the most diverse conditions of existence, are generally the most constant, we attach especial value to them. But if these same organs, in another group or section of a group, are found to differ much, we at once value them less in our classification. We shall presently see why embryological characters are of such high classificatory importance. Geographical distribution may sometimes be brought usefully into play in classing large genera, because all the species of the same genus, inhabiting any distinct and isolated region, are in all probability descended from the same parents. 
Analogical Resemblances We can understand, on the above views, the very important distinction between real affinities and analogical or adaptive resemblances. Lamarck first called attention to this subject, and he has been ably followed by Maclee and others. The resemblance in the shape of the body and in the fin-like anterior limbs between dugongs and whales, and between these two orders of mammals and fishes, are analogical. So is the resemblance between a mouse and a shrew-mouse, sorex, which belong to different orders, and the still closer resemblance, insisted on by Mr. Mivart, between the mouse and a small marsupial animal, Antichinus, of Australia. These latter resemblances may be accounted for, as it seems to me, by adaptation for similarly active movements through thickets and herbage, together with concealment from enemies. Among insects there are innumerable instances. Thus Linnaeus, misled by external appearances, actually classed an homopterous insect as a moth. We see something of the same kind even with our domestic varieties, as in the strikingly similar shape of the body in the improved breeds of the Chinese and common pig, which are descended from distinct species, and in the similarly thickened stems of the common and specifically distinct Swedish turnip. The resemblance between the greyhound and racehorse is hardly more fanciful than the analogies which have been drawn by some authors between widely different animals. On the view of characters being of real importance for classification, only in so far as they reveal descent, we can clearly understand why analogical or adaptive characters, although of the utmost importance to the welfare of the being, are almost valueless to the systematist. For animals belonging to two most distinct lines of descent may have become adapted to similar conditions, and thus have assumed a close external resemblance but such resemblances will not reveal, will rather tend to conceal, their blood relationship. We can thus also understand the apparent paradox that the very same characters are analogical when one group is compared with another, but give true affinities when the members of the same group are compared together. Thus the shape of the body and fin-like limbs are only analogical when whales are compared with fishes, being adaptations in both classes for swimming through the water. But between the several members of the whale family, the shape of the body and the fin-like limbs offer characters exhibiting true affinity, for as these parts are so nearly similar throughout the whole family, we cannot doubt that they have been inherited from a common ancestor. So it is with fishes. Numerous cases could be given of striking resemblances in quite distinct beings between single parts or organs which have been adapted for the same functions. A good instance is afforded by the close resemblance of the jaws of the dog and Tasmanian wolf, or thylacinus, animals which are widely sundered in the natural system. But this resemblance is confined to general appearance, as in the prominence of the canines, and in the cutting shape of the molar teeth, for the teeth really differ much. Thus the dog has on each side of the upper jaw four premolars and only two molars, while the thylacinus has three premolars and four molars. The molars also differ much in the two animals in relative size and structure. The adult dentition is preceded by a widely different milk dentition. 
Any one may, of course, deny that the teeth in either case have been adapted for tearing flesh, through the natural selection of successive variations, but if this be admitted in the one case, it is unintelligible to me that it should be denied in the other. I am glad to find that so high an authority as Professor Flower has come to this same conclusion. The extraordinary cases given in a former chapter of widely different fishes possessing electric organs, of widely different insects possessing luminous organs, and of orchids and asclepiads having pollen masses with viscid discs, come under this same head of analogical resemblances. But these cases are so wonderful that they were introduced as difficulties or objections to our theory. In all such cases some fundamental difference in the growth or development of the parts, and generally in their matured structure, can be detected. The end gained is the same, but the means, though appearing superficially to be the same, are essentially different. The principle formerly alluded to under the term of analogical variation has probably in these cases often come into play, that is, the members of the same class, although only distantly allied, have inherited so much in common in their constitution that they are apt to vary under similar exciting causes in a similar manner, and this would obviously aid in the acquirement through natural selection of parts or organs strikingly like each other, independently of their direct inheritance from a common progenitor. As species belonging to distinct classes have often been adapted by successive slight modifications to live under nearly similar circumstances, to inhabit, for instance, the three elements of land, air, and water, we can perhaps understand how it is that a numerical parallelism has sometimes been observed between the subgroups of distinct classes. A naturalist, struck with a parallelism of this nature, by arbitrarily raising or sinking the value of the groups in several classes, and all our experience shows that their valuation is as yet arbitrary, could easily extend the parallelism over a wide range, and thus the septenary, quinary, quaternary and ternary classifications have probably arisen. There is another and curious class of cases in which close external resemblance does not depend on adaptation to similar habits of life, but has been gained for the sake of protection. I allude to the wonderful manner in which certain butterflies imitate, as first described by Mr. Bates, other and quite distinct species. This excellent observer has shown that in some districts of South America, where, for instance, anethomia abounds in gaudy swarms, another butterfly, namely a leptalis, is often found mingled in the same flock, and the latter so closely resembles the ethomia in every shade and stripe of colour, and even in the shape of its wings, that Mr. Bates, with his eyes sharpened by collecting during eleven years, was, though always on his guard, continually deceived. When the mockers and the mocked are caught and compared, they are found to be very different in essential structure, and to belong not only to distinct genera, but often to distinct families. Had this mimicry occurred in only one or two instances, it might have been passed over as a strange coincidence. But if we proceed from a district where one leptalis imitates anethomia, another mocking and mocked species belonging to the same two genera 
equally close in their resemblance, may be found. Altogether, no less than ten genera are enumerated, which include species that imitate other butterflies. The mockers and mocked always inhabit the same region. We never find an imitator living remote from the form which it imitates. The mockers are almost invariably rare insects. The mocked, in almost every case, abounds in swarms. In the same district in which a species of Leptalis closely imitates an ethomia, there are sometimes other Lepidoptera mimicking the same ethomia, so that in the same place a species of three genera of butterflies and even a moth are found all closely resembling a butterfly belonging to a fourth genus. It deserves especial notice that many of the mimicking forms of the Leptalis, as well as of the mimicked forms, can be shown by a graduated series to be merely varieties of the same species, while others are undoubtedly distinct species. But why, it may be asked, are certain forms treated as the mimicked and others as the mimickers? Mr. Bates satisfactorily answers this question by showing that the form which is imitated keeps the usual dress of the group to which it belongs, while the counterfeiters have changed their dress and do not resemble their nearest allies. We are next led to inquire what reason can be assigned for certain butterflies and moths so often assuming the dress of another and quite distinct form. Why, to the perplexity of naturalists, has nature condescended to the tricks of the stage? Mr. Bates has no doubt hit on the true explanation. The mocked forms, which always abound in numbers, must habitually escape destruction to a large extent, otherwise they could not exist in such swarms, and a large amount of evidence has now been collected showing that they are distasteful to birds and other insect-devouring animals. The mocking forms, on the other hand, that inhabit the same district, are comparatively rare, and belong to rare groups. Hence, they must suffer habitually from some danger, for otherwise, from the number of eggs laid by all butterflies, they would, in three or four generations, swarm over the whole country. Now, if a member of one of these persecuted and rare groups were to assume a dress so like that of a well-protected species, that it continually deceived the practised eyes of an entomologist, it would often deceive predaceous birds and insects, and thus often escape destruction. Mr. Bates may also be said to have actually witnessed the process by which the mimickers have come so closely to resemble the mimicked, for he found that some of the forms of Leptalis which mimic so many other butterflies varied in an extreme degree. In one district several varieties occurred, and of these one alone resembled, to a certain extent, the common ethomia of the same district. In another district there were two or three varieties, one of which was much commoner than the others, and this closely mocked another form of ethomia. From facts of this nature Mr. Bates concludes that the Leptalis first varies, and when a variety happens to resemble in some degree any common butterfly inhabiting the same district, this variety, from its resemblance to a flourishing and little persecuted kind, has a better chance of escaping destruction from predaceous birds and insects, and is consequently oftener preserved. The less perfect degree of resemblance being generation after generation eliminated, 
and only the others left to propagate their kind. So that here we have an excellent illustration of natural selection. Monsieur Wallace and Trimmen have likewise described several equally striking cases of imitation in the Lepidoptera of the Malay archipelago and Africa, and with some other insects. Mr. Wallace has also detected one such case with birds, but we have none with the larger quadrupeds. The much greater frequency of imitation with insects than with other animals is probably the consequence of their small size. Insects cannot defend themselves, excepting indeed the kinds furnished with a sting, and I have never heard of an instance of such kinds mocking other insects, though they are mocked. Insects cannot easily escape by flight from the larger animals which prey on them. Therefore, speaking metaphorically, they are reduced, like most weak creatures, to trickery and dissimulation. It should be observed that the process of imitation probably never commenced between forms widely dissimilar in colour, but starting with species already somewhat like each other, the closest resemblance, if beneficial, could readily be gained by the above means, and if the imitated form was subsequently and gradually modified through any agency, the imitating form would be led along the same track, and thus be altered to almost any extent, so that it might ultimately assume an appearance or colouring wholly unlike that of the other members of the family to which it belonged. There is, however, some difficulty on this head, for it is necessary to suppose in some cases that ancient members belonging to several distinct groups, before they had diverged to their present extent, accidentally resembled a member of another and protected group in a sufficient degree to afford some slight protection, this having given the basis for the subsequent acquisition of the most perfect resemblance. End of chapter 14 Section 1